the most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Saturday edition of the best of Fight Back from the week that was. The long-awaited National Dementia Strategy was released this past Monday. Beginning this year, the Trudeau Liberals plan to invest $50 million over five years on a strategy which focuses on prevention and help for caregivers. At this point, prevention is the key because there's not much in the way of treatment. And the treatments that do exist can slow the progression of the disease at best. About 420,000 Canadians have been diagnosed with some form of dementia, and they rely on an average of 26 hours a week of help from friends and relatives. That's why caregiving is also a focus since caregiver burnout is a huge issue. To discuss the strategy, Libby Snymer was joined by Pauline Tardif, CEO of the Alzheimer's Society and co-chair of the Ministerial Advisory Board, and Jane Jane Medes, lawyer for the Advocacy Center for the Elderly. The Alzheimer's Society of Canada is really pleased um, with the strategy and where it has landed, if you will. Uh, the Ministerial Advisory Board, of which I am a part, as you mentioned, has been working diligently over the last year and a half to help inform that strategy, to help bring forward um, the voice of those living with dementia, including uh, care the carers um, perspective to ensure that it's focused on the few key things that we know could have a very important impact on their quality of life. So, yes, we're thrilled that we have now a stake in the ground and a focus, um, and now we need to deliver on that and um, ensure that uh, the strategy remains fully funded um, uh, to, you know, ensure that it has the uh, effectiveness that we need it to have uh, over the coming years. Jane, your job is defending vulnerable elderly people, many of them with dementia. How do you see this? Well, I, I you know, we're very hopeful with it. Um, obviously, what we see are a lot of issues around caregivers um, and people who are in situations where they don't have access to families or friends or those families and friends are not able to provide that care. And so we're really hoping that this strategy will help those people as well uh, find other places, maybe uh, plan ahead. Uh, I think that's a big thing as well. And and to, you know, have the system be there uh, when they need it. Because what we see is people coming out of hospital and, and there's not enough home care, there's not enough services in the community, um, especially if you live in smaller communities. So I think that's, you know, something that we're really uh, hopeful for. Pauline, there's a big focus on prevention here. I mean, this mm-hmm. is something that we've known for a long time. And, you know, uh, there's an old saying, what's good for your heart is good for your brain. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it, and so it, it's focusing. People have to exercise. People have to eat healthy, keep their blood pressure, their weight under control. But, you know, I think most people know this. How, how are you going to advance that? That's a really important piece, and I'll just correct you on one piece. In fact, it's not that long ago that we have, um, it's fairly recent in the last decade or so where we have had 
more and more conclusive evidence of the benefit of prevention uh, because now we know uh, through uh, research happening in Canada and globally that um, the disease process in the brain happens way earlier, uh, up to 20 years, 15, 20 years before symptoms are, uh, before you see any symptoms of uh, dementia. So, um, what we're talking about here is behavior change and being aware, first of all, that as you mentioned, what's good for the heart is good for the brain, but there are also things that are specifically good for the brain, like early education, like social, uh, uh combating social isolation, so being, uh, socially active and other, uh, elements like that, um, that, uh, sleep, um, and so on that are, uh, really focused on the brain itself. It's the most complex organ in our body, if you will. And I think Canadians um, will start to um, understand better uh, that uh, what we do for uh, better overall health, yes, it can improve our overall brain health as well, but there are also some specific things we can do, and that is not well known, and there's still some research to be done to understand that better, and then, of course, to work with Canadians to um, to encourage behavior change around uh, healthy lifestyle to be able to prevent uh, a disease that cannot be treated today. Pauline, what would you like to leave us with, and is there enough money behind this strategy? Yeah, I think I'd like to leave you on a hopeful note that this government is paying attention to dementia and to um, have a law uh, which came into effect in 2017 is one thing, but to actually have a strategy is another. Uh, so there are very specific objectives here. Um, the next step is to implement it and have benchmarks and hold government to account and use the money that they have uh, allocated to actually make a real difference in people's lives. But for me, this is an aspirational piece. As it's a very definite uh, step forward, and um, the Alzheimer's Society of Canada is really pleased with that outcome. But at the same time, we want to make sure that going into an election, that we don't keep uh, that we keep our attention on this, and that. Uh, people living with dementia in Canada uh, get the attention that uh, they deserve uh, and the investments needed to have a better quality of life overall, I would say. Pauline Tardif, CEO of the Alzheimer's Society and co-chair of the Ministerial Advisory Board, and Jane Medes, lawyer for the Advocacy Centre for the Elderly. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. It's now illegal in the province of Quebec for teachers, police officers, and other public servants in positions of authority to wear religious symbols. Quebec's contentious secularism bill was voted into law this past Sunday night. Members of Quebec's opposition parties, along with members of minority groups and human rights observers, say the law is an affront to personal liberty, which targets religious minorities. Premier Francois Legault and his CAQ members argue it affirms the Québécois people's secular identity. To discuss the controversial law, Libby was joined by Martin Sampson, VP of Communications at the Centre for Israel and Jewish Affairs, and Tarek Fateh, founder of the Muslim Canadian Congress. Well, fundamentally, it's uh, uh, the first resting government after uh, Sarkozy's French government that has uh, had the courage to stand up to 
um, uh, Islamism uh, and its agenda worldwide. Uh, most Western countries, including uh, uh, Canada, are drowning in what I label as white guilt, which means anything that is uh, conducted in the name of Islam or Muslims is uh, hands-off. You can't touch it. Nobody can criticize it. Nobody can discuss it. And uh, there's a long history in Quebec uh, with their own problems of the social revolution and the dominance of the Catholic Church over there that was overthrown. So uh, Quebec is a symbol of uh, a separation of religion and state. And uh, uh, it's unfortunate that many other religious groups have um, to go along with this. But the main message that I get is sent straight to uh, people like the Quebec Council of Imams and uh, the many other Muslim Brotherhood groups that are thriving in Ottawa, in Parliament, in uh, Queen's Park, in Toronto. They've infiltrated almost every other place in society where uh, freedom of speech and freedom of uh, expression has been snuffed out. So if the Quebec government is one where, uh, uh, which takes on this force, uh, although in a, in a way that affects a whole lot of other people, uh, I would say hats off to you. Uh, we are living in a society where, uh, uh, where I live, in my neighborhood, in downtown Toronto, where there are um, five-year-old girls being forced into a hijab, uh, where daughters cannot leave their homes in, in the Regent Park area unless they are covered uh, from head to toe. And the men, basically, uh, as cowards, you put forward women to face the brunt of this and say that if you don't cover your head, you will burn in hell. Now, in the 21st century, if someone's going to burn in hell because their head's not covered or the face is not covered... Uh, what are we going back okay, to the 12th? Okay, Tarek, let's get Martin Sampson's perspective. Martin, uh, you're very disappointed in this law. We are indeed. The Jewish community in Quebec and frankly across the country is profoundly disappointed with the adoption of Bill 21. We, of course, strongly support religious neutrality of the state, but we believe that secularism of the state is an institutional duty, not a personal one, and the commitment to secularism does not rest on the outward appearance of individuals. So we believe that this is uh, heavy-handed, unnecessary, and that there are all sorts of problems with the law that are certainly going to play out as they attempt to implement the law. So yes, bottom line is we are disappointed, and we think that this is um, trampling on the religious freedom of the citizens of Quebec. The core of the issue is really around religious freedoms. Religious freedoms are protected in the Charter. Um, there is no indication whatsoever that the individuals impacted by this ban have in any way had you know, their ability to deliver on their duties uh, impacted because they wear religious symbols. Um, it, it, we think it's heavy-handed, and we think it's going to be impossible to enforce because it's so vague. So we're going to be watching very, very closely as it's implemented. Um, we will be determining our course of action based on that implementation, and I can tell you that we will certainly be challenging the notwithstanding clause when it expires and calling for a thorough review of this law uh, at that time. 
if they invoke the notwithstanding clause, how can you uh, challenge that? The notwithstanding clause expires after a period, and at that time, we will definitely be registering our concerns and, as I said, calling for a thorough review of this. There may be other steps that we take in the meantime, depending on how it's implemented, but it's too soon. Uh, but we will be watching very, very closely and registering our community's concerns, as we have done throughout this process with the government. Um, we will be registering our community's concerns with the hope of, uh, of making the necessary changes. Martin Sampson at the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs and Tarek Fatah, founder of the Muslim Canadian Congress. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. One of the discussions that came out of the Massive Raptors Championship Rally on Monday was the booing of Doug Ford. Ontario's premier was introduced on stage along with both Mayor John Tory and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, among other dignitaries. What does this mean for Doug Ford with three years left in his majority mandate? On Tuesday, Libby Snymer was joined by our panel of experts, strategist Kim Wright, liberal strategist and senior counsel to national public relations, Bob Richardson, and Aleem Kanji, VP of Government Relations at Sutherland Corporation. The Premier of Ontario, Doug Ford! It sounds like a wrestling match, but of course that was uh, a clip uh, you just shared from the uh, the parade and the celebrations. Uh, two and a half million people strong uh, at the uh, Raptors uh, victory celebration yesterday. And, you know, the Premier originally had said uh, that he doesn't do parades. And, uh, of course... He ended up uh, coming uh, in uh, uh, participating and sitting on the stage uh, next to the the mayor who was uh, uh, about to clap for the premier, but didn't end up doing that. And of course, the prime minister uh, who did come out uh, to some applause. And what was really interesting about that is uh, before he came out, uh, he was uh, sort of on the sidelines uh, and, uh, you know, doing some, some glad handing and, and meeting some folks. And one Masai Ujiri, the president of the Toronto Raptors, um, who who he walked uh, by, uh, uh, Masai walked by the premier, the premier extended his hand, and uh, they did shake hands, although it, it, it didn't look like they engaged a bit. And, uh, you know, communications, staffing, I mean, there's so many things that go into this as an elected official, and you, you sort of got to wonder what was going on at that moment, and are there going to be some changes outside of the cabinet shuffle that's happening uh, that... Uh, you know, will lend to a, a bit of a stronger presence, I think, for uh, for the premier going forward. Bob, how damaging was that? Do you think? I don't think it's that damaging, but I think it reaffirms what we've seen in seven or eight polls in the last uh, few weeks that this guy is in political trouble, and you know they can't just write it off as downtown elites and sort of martini sipping people at the Shangri La Hotel. Uh, there were two million people out there, and there was hundreds of thousands of people around for for that presentation. A lot of people dislike what's going on in Ontario today, and I think they made themselves. And it was very clear. Like, let's make no mistake. He got booed and got booed bad, and both uh, the mayor and the prime minister were greeted, I would say, quite warmly. So I think there is a lesson there uh, for them to say, you know. Um, we should take a, we should take this seriously. We should look at, that was a pretty good cross section of, uh, not only Toronto and the GTA, but I think it was a pretty good cross section of Ontario. 
And there were a lot of people there from outside of uh, Toronto and the greater Toronto area who showed up too as well. So if I were those guys, I would not be happy with that. And I would be asking myself, why is this the case? And uh, Kim, Doug Ford has always prided himself on being popular in ethnic communities, and it was a very, very diverse crowd. How important was that? Well, look, I I will remind listeners that in 1992, uh, Bob Ray got booed pretty loudly and soundly at the Blue Jays uh, World Series. And uh, anyone, any politician who gets booed that soundly and that roundly uh, from constituents uh, should take note, especially given the polling numbers of late that has the premier somewhere in the 29 percent, 30 percent range. Uh, They need to take that into serious consideration. And keep in mind, that was two years after Bob Ray got elected did not uh, just over a year. Uh, This isn't about his policies being unpopular or however conservatives want to spin this. There are some serious concerns of the way in which he is doing this and keeping in mind also that this is a premier who is frankly a populist premier who is incredibly unpopular at this particular point in time. They need to do a recalibration, both of their policies and their communication strategies. They need to do that right away. Strategist Kim Wright, liberal strategist and senior counsel to National Public Relations, Bob Richardson, and Aleem Kanji, VP of Government Relations at Sutherland Corporation, in conversation with Libby Snymer on Tuesday. Two days later, Premier Ford shuffled his cabinet. We'll recap that event and react to it on tomorrow's Best of Fight Back at 12.30. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Should the City of Toronto move to open bidding for construction projects and other jobs that are currently limited to nine unions? City councillors debated that question this past week. Joining Libby to discuss and in favor of the current system, Councillor Mike Layton, along with Deputy Mayor and Councillor Stephen Holliday, who supports the change. It is complicated. It's not necessarily something that's grabbing headlines, but there is potential here. Uh, for savings. And we know uh, different people have different opinions on the amount of savings, but I got stopped right at the idea that maybe this is better for the City of Toronto. Uh, It creates more competition, and it could lead to better outcomes when you get more people at the table making bids on projects for the city. Mike Leighton, what's your view? The cost savings that are predicted are are unlikely. And I think that with a decision like this comes a certain amount of risk. Because I think the one people that the one thing that people want more than just the job being done for the cheapest price is the job being done right and the job being done safely. And that's what you get when you when you have collective agreements with unionized shops. And the, the name of this is kind of a misnomer. It's not that there's no competition now. It's not that it's it's closed completely. There are contractors that work with the unions that there are collective agreements for uh, and, and they can bid on projects. Uh, and so with that comes a certain amount of certainty that you're getting uh, your appropriate training and, and safety measures that are being followed, uh, that you're getting good quality because people know what they're, what they're doing. But then there's another piece, and that's that the city has other policy goals around its major construction projects. Oftentimes, when there's a construction project in a community, a low-income community, we come up with community benefit agreements where there's a certain amount of training and jobs that go to individuals. Well, the existing, the existing unions that we work with have programs for that. So we don't have to go and constantly monitor them. We don't have to go and check the job sites to make sure that things are being done a certain way. 
we know it already is. This isn't about union versus non-union or union busting. It's completely different. The, the point here is that the city, through labor laws and rulings, are tied to some very, very specific unions for very, very specific work. And there's other people out there, other unionized entities that can also do this work that are cut out of it. For instance, uh, CLAC, Christian Labor Assembly, is a very large construction union. They're all over Ontario. And the people that work for CLAC in the city of Toronto can't work on jobs in the city of Toronto because they are cut out of it. So the legislation that's being proposed by the government opens it back up so that they too can bid on the jobs, along with all of the other construction trades that are currently working on it today. So what they're really doing is just making the doors open a bit wider for other people to get in on the work. Non-union shops would be allowed to bid as well, isn't that right, Mike? That's that is correct. Uh, it would be opening up the doors to uh, to, to non-union employers, uh, where the city would have to actually play a, a, a larger role in ensuring that our fair wage policy is being followed to ensure that uh, adequate safety uh, is being met for the workers. And we had an example of uh, of a non-union shop where it went terrible, terribly awry with the death of workers just a, just just a couple of years ago and uh, in, in the Christmas season. Like this, this is what we're trying to avoid by having these collective agreements. We have certainty that they have trained professionals, that they're meeting our other targets, our other policy targets around community development and workforce development, uh, that they're uh, also providing quality workmanship. We don't want to repair things yeah, uh, just a couple years after because it wasn't it wasn't built properly the first time. Um, I, I personally would prefer the certainty that it's happening correctly uh, and that we're not just racing to the bottom of the per- person that's going to do the cheapest job. Uh, Stephen Holliday, what's your prediction about how this will go? It's a controversial issue, uh, to say the least, among councillors because of all of the different interests. And you can imagine we've got people from the trades and from the uh, independent contractors coming at us advocating for their position. So we'll have to see. But at the end of the day, I think people should hold their councillor accountable for the vote that they take. And uh, they should ask those questions when their councillor comes around at the door the next election is how you voted on this type of thing. Did you go for uh, the, the, the current status quo or did you go for a change that might have opened things up? Deputy Mayor and Councillor Stephen Holliday and Councillor Mike Layton in conversation with Libby this past Tuesday. In the end, councillors decided to stay with the same system. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the week. Pat in Toronto phoned to say the Ford PCs are not informing people properly about their funding cuts. They have to educate the population as to why we need to have these cuts. They've done a terrible job on selling this concept. And, you know, I might suggest they use something like there is no free lunch. We've got to get people to understand that there's only X amount of money. Then that's the problem. They haven't educated the population. Darko in Toronto called to say that since only 30 to 40 percent of the Ontario population likes Doug Ford, it makes sense that he got booed at the Raptors rally. Ford was the one with about 38 percent of the vote, which is which was most majority governments get. So he's down nine points. So there's everybody's got at least 60 plus percent of the population that they don't like them. 
And if you want to make noise, you can make noise. You know, like it's you know, this is, every party spins it that you know all every, whoever's in power is hated so much because there are sixty percent of people who didn't like him in the first place, and they didn't like McGinty, and they didn't like Harper, or 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 probably Bill Davis. You know, it's uh, insane that you see this spin put on all the time. Uh, with every politician that happens to be in power. Linda in Toronto phoned to say there should be an emphasis on home care moving forward as the population ages and there are more people living with dementia. We need to provide funding for people to stay in their homes and um, do home care. Um, I know with with home care uh, studies in the past, uh, home care is considerably cheaper than institutional care. I really think that there's a lot of people that would would definitely go for home care if they know that it's supported. You know, that may be by paying the caregiver or that might be by um, just providing a, a live-in caregiver. Um, an option that I know some of my friends have used is to bring in someone from the Philippines that's a nurse uh, and have them be a live-in caregiver, uh, it's been considerably less expensive than putting them in a long-term care facility. And the person with Alzheimer's has the, the satisfaction of knowing that they're surrounded by their family, by things they know, all of which I, I have to say would probably contribute to a better outcome for the family and for the person with Alzheimer's. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Ivan in Milton, who is a caregiver for his wife, who is in hospital and living with dementia. Ivan spends every afternoon with his wife to make sure she's being fed and cared for properly. There's just not enough people in the system taking care of these seniors with strokes and dementia. People talk and talk and talk. If those people would get their hands dirty and go and help, it'd be fabulous. The big kahunas have got to get more people helping. Hands on. Not talking about it. Not sharing what we're going to do. It's now. We're in the now. I can't remember how many people are waiting for care homes right now. But it's in, it's in the hundreds or in the thousands. They're talking about the future. The future. We're, we're in the now, Libby. It has to happen now. That does it for today's Best to Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays at 416-360-0740 here on Zoomer Radio, AM 740 and 96.7 FM in downtown Toronto. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca and follow us on Twitter at fightbacklibby. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Michelle Saunders, Justin Eacock, and Kelly Robotham 